On the subject of travel, Flaubert once said, yeah, I'm starting the show with a quote from Flaubert. It was either that or we had one from Brett Michaels of Poison. I had to make an executive decision. I went with Flaubert. Would you have done the same or would you have gone with every rose having a thorn? All right. I went with Flaubert and Flaubert once said of travel, travel makes one modest. You see what a tiny place you occupy in the world. Well, that does make sense. That is the kind of observation you would make after traveling a bit. Perhaps post-collegiate travel would bring that kind of insight. You know, you're 22, 23, you're hanging out in hostels, partying with strangers, seeing incredible sights. And yes, you would think to yourself, the world is massive. And by comparison, I am insignificant. That is something you might say in your early 20s. But what if you did some travel and you had that same feeling and you were 12? That's a pretty insightful 12-year-old, right? Well, my guest today on the program was that insightful 12-year-old, but it makes perfect sense because he's also a very insightful adult. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I got shot at two different times. Both times they missed. Lady Luck was looking good that night. I'm the one she kissed We were dancing at the edge of it all But I had the knack I could lean into the endless fall Touch it and still turn back Now I can't help wondering How I got so lucky again Thinking about the death of my good friends That is the music of my guest today on the we program kids David Wilcox Let me tell you a little bit about David Wilcox The Ohio-born David Wilcox is one of our great treasures Over the course of his career the singer-songwriter has put out nearly 25 perfect albums including 1989's How Did You Find Me Here? 1991's Home Again, 2003's Into the Mystery, and his brand new one, My Good Friends. Bringing to mind the work of Nick Drake, Bob Dylan, John Gorka, and Milo Binder, Wilcox is one of those rare singer-songwriters whose body of work has no dip in quality. My Good Friends is a great example of how Wilcox just keeps crushing it. From the retrospective romp of the title track, which you just heard, to the stirring Just a Trace of Light, to the deeply moving album closer, This Is How It Ends, Wilcox has never sounded better. Observational, compelling, and wise, his work is always punctuated by an artful blend of delicacy, strength, and musical finesse. Now look, his resume, it's a long one, but some highlights include playing Carnegie Hall, opening for the Indigo Girls, and being on the cover of Acoustic Guitar Magazine. He's a lovely and thoughtful guy, and this conversation, I think, gives you an idea of where he does his best thinking. And that's got a lot to do with travel. And wait until you hear about his travels as a 12-year-old. It pretty much blew my mind, and I think you'll be knocked out as well. This is a great conversation. So enjoy it. Me and David Wilcox having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
great parenting. I had um, uh, what Seinfeld calls benign neglect. <laughs> uh, I, I, my parents just kind of figured, well, he'll probably survive. So uh, they didn't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> How did that inform your own uh, choices as a parent? Um, well, Nance and I had some interesting conversations uh, about that. You know, she was, you know, like kids need consistency and kids need boundaries. And I was thinking, you know, what kids really need is to distrust their parents and to realize that they have to raise themselves. That's that's like the best a parent can do. <laughs> so it's a little bit of both in your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, um, so I would think at the time you grew up, you're a few years older than me, but not many, but where you grow up and when you grew up, motorcycles, the right, the right turn would have been to punk rock. Did punk huh. rock do anything for you at all? Well, you know, um, my friend Jeff brought over those records, you know, and I remember so clearly thinking it was really fun and fun is good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, I just didn't get it for me. Uh, it wasn't sort of what my heart needed. So I know like Ohio had bands that were, I know we originally from Ohio, but you've got like Per Ubu yeah. and Rocket from the Tombs and none of that stuff really, really hit you square in the, in that place. I, I wanted a, I mean, I, I enjoyed the sort of cathartic release, the sort of the anger and the energy and the just the fun of it um but uh even then i knew i needed to get to sort of the root of the problem instead of just alleviate the symptom and um the root of the problem was not just that you know the system is bullshit and all that but uh the root of the problem was I have a life to live. I could live it in anger, or I could try to find a way to make this life in all its injustice and sorrow somehow feel like an adventure um, instead of some victim story. And so to me, I knew right away, um, it wasn't just a matter of venting the the frustration it was more a matter of i needed music that would sort of heal the root cause uh and not just you know sort of alleviate the symptoms <laughs> and so uh i've always used music in that way i've always used music as um sort of like a, a therapy or a, a practice you know like some people run every day and i i I go to the quiet room and the empty page as if it's like a practice where I'm asking my heart, is there anything you need to tell me before it's too late? And that's sort of why I come to music. That's what it's for. Um, and I'm always confounded by people who want to talk about like, the music business. I've never been in the music business. <laughs> I don't I know nothing about it. I know that I I was susceptible to music. I was I was uh 
it had access to my deep heart. And because of that, I could use music as a tool to get to my own heart. Uh, but I wasn't like making widgets. I wasn't after like, I didn't think I would do it for a living. I just knew that music was a way for me to somehow uh, hear what my heart was trying to tell me. That's all. First of all, that's really beautiful. But also for a young man to be that in touch with <laughs> that philosophy, and because ang anger would have been the easy path. That would have been the low-hanging fruit, right? But you took the more philosophical, I think the more challenging path. Um, well, it's just by the family I grew up in. The family I grew up in was all, you know, really smart, really angry, really cynical people. And I just looked at that path and realized, well, it's not like they aren't doing it en enough. You know, they're, they're, they're full on with that path and it's not working. <laughs> so I thought, uh, better try something else if I want to survive. I used to think that being an artist is you're like Sisyphus where you're just rolling the boulder up the hill and you got to roll it up again because it's never going over the other side. And I, I, I always thought of that as sort of a frustrating thing, but maybe now I'm recontextualizing that and thinking, no, that that's actually, you're getting closer each time. So you must not find the blank page, a daunting sight. Um, well, first of all, fascinating uh, picture of writing as if um, as if the big change in your life will come from an idea. This is a, a notion that is true when it comes to science, you know, like there's somebody who thinks of a thing and then everything in their field is different, you know, like mm -hmm. Einstein. And yet for personal happiness, there isn't an idea that's going to make a huge difference in your life. It's all about a practice. And the fascinating thing about a practice is a practice takes you all the way there, but you don't stay there. You know, it's like, I feel good after a run, but it doesn't last the next day. I have to run again. <laughs> <laughs> right. You do. And so the blank page to me is, you know, that's job security. That's a, that's a beautiful invitation to there's more. That's, that's a promise of life can get more juicy and interesting and complex and fun. And, you know, now I love songs that are like a little song with a big idea is my favorite thing. Um, my current favorite song as of this week, I was doing a bunch of gigs and driving and I, I found Jessica Hoop, who for some reason I'd never heard before. And her song, Sudden Light, is about the bravery of leaving the womb-like safety. Um, you know, the first verse in the song references being born but it's talking about leaving that womb-like safety over and over and over again in her life. And, and uh, just like a baby can kick at the womb and change its shape, she's saying that her beliefs contain her 
and she can change that shape of her beliefs. And to me, that's a huge song that would, you know, that will change your life. And so to make that complex idea fit in a little song uh, that invites you back with the quirkiness and the originality of the music and all that, it just feels to me like um, music is such an easy path compared to, you know, philosophy or, you know, religion. It's just, uh, it just puts it right in your heart. You get this transmission of all the work that she has done to figure that out. And she just gives it to me in a song and I can feel it. I can feel how, oh, that's true. You know, uh, change the shape of my belief and the world changes. Uh, that's, that's just really a cool little thing that music can do. Do you still marvel at how, and it sounds like you do, someone like Jessica or whoever else, how they tackle the blank page? In other words, how they, like you almost reverse engineer and think like, wow, the construction of that song is really brilliant. And at, so it makes me think like when you listen, you almost listen as a a practitioner more than a more than a fan like are you from... <laughs> I love that uh just getting a window into your question makes me realize that uh it, it's such a strange way that I think about music because I don't think about the form at all it's so weird um what I love about music is that it still surprises me it still confounds me and like, for example, if there's a song I really love, I won't figure out how to play it. I don't want to know. It's like, no, don't show me how the magic trick works. I want the magic. And so I will listen to a song as if what I'm trying to get is the state of mind or the emotional perspective of the person who was writing it. Uh, and the way that it moves through the medium of music is kind of irrelevant to me. Um, like people say, what kind of music do you like? And I say, well, music that makes life more juicy. And they look at me like, oh, come on, answer the question. You know, do you like this kind or that kind? And I say, if, a, if two different songs that sound very different have the same idea, they sound the same to me. And they say, oh, that doesn't, no, you don't really think that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of uh, Waterloo, the record store in Austin that used to put all the music alphabetically. You know, like, we're not going to put the urban music over here in this corner. No, it's music. You know, I see this at when, when a writer, I, I teach university, and if a writer comes to do a reading, Invariably, there's always the question of what's your process? How did you do it? And when you talk about your analogy with magic, when people see a magic trick, their first thought is like, how did they do that? Right. But it's better to sort of maybe just sort of, you know, enjoy the moment of amazement or because if you think like that, you're not really being allowing yourself to be moved by that moment. Mm, yes. Right. That's why I keep, you know, like every time I learn how to play the guitar, I change the guitar and make it a different tuning so that I don't know how to play it because I don't want to be the master of my instrument. I want the instrument to surprise me. 
So I, I have, I play in, I don't know, probably 50 different tunings and they're all a mystery to me. I never know what chords I'm playing and that's the way I want it. I want it to be, you know, it's always kind of a funeral when I go to the studio to play with other people and they chart it out and I say, oh, really? It's just that? Huh. It sounded like it was something really cool to me. <laughs> because the voicings are different, but when you chart it out, well, it's pretty standard. But, um, you know, to me, it just feels like a wilderness. And I love that. When I was younger, in my early 20s, I was talking to a guy who was older than I was. and I, He was a friend of a friend. He was a doctor. And I told him that I was in love with this girl. And I said, he said, how do you know? And I explained how I felt physically. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, no, that's just. And he then he explained what was happening to me inside my body. And he was neurochemicals, like. Neurochemicals, right. Right, neurochemically. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you, it's just that? You just took the fun right out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like charting a song, right? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I remember thinking that there when I, you know, I listen to like a song and I'll say to myself, like, if I wrote that song, I would just go, well, I'm done. That was perfect. But the Beatles didn't stop and the Pixies didn't stop and David Wilcox didn't stop. You just keep going, right? Because you're trying wow. to progress and get, just keep going up that road. Now, that's fascinating. In that uh, little story, I feel the same about other people's songs. Like if if somebody has written a fantastic song, I will just say, yes, I will love you forever now. I don't care. You could be an axe murderer. That's fine. But you wrote that song, so you're going, you know, you're good with me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet for myself, um, I could never like look at an old song and say, that's something I did. To me, it was just like, that's a beautiful road that I got to ride. It's behind me. So doesn't really matter uh but it was a nice road uh it lured me out of my uh lethargy and and inspired me to think differently and feel differently and be brave about you know what life could be so uh i'm grateful for old songs but they don't feel like something i did they just felt like s something i went through or something that went through me i don't know <laughs> yeah do, do you see them as a measurement to where you are now or do you don't think of it like that sometimes although the songs morph and change and there are songs that have new meanings because of the setting you know like there's songs that uh was originally about some tragic thing and then years later it became about a different tragic thing and then somebody says hey play the song about the school shooting and I say, are you talking about this song? Because that song's really about 9-11. <laughs> and they say, oh, oh, I didn't know. So, um, yeah, um, I think there are songs that stay with me and change themselves as I change. Um, and I love to think of that as, um, like, there's this lovely line in a Greg Brown song. The song is called, uh, I think it's, called uh, a man who's rich in daughters or maybe the song is just called daughters but at one point in the song his daughter's looking out the window as they're driving and she says the moon is following us home and because it's so far away 
if you're driving on a straight road and you're looking through the trees and the moon is there and then it's there again and then there it is and then over the field there it is and it's keeping pace with us and i think there are songs that are kind of so far away that they're they're never behind me they're always beside me uh and i'm grateful when i come to those songs i don't pretend i know them i don't pretend that they're sort of who they used to be i always like come to them with who are you now and how can you be new for this moment um so yeah um songs like all the roots grow deeper when it's dry i mean originally that was about this we were visiting nance's relatives in sweden and at that time sweden was experiencing this downturn and everybody was really surprised because the generation that was you know surprised had grown up in just like endless prosperity it's like going up and up and up and there was this downturn and everyone was like what do we do wrong and that song was like no nah, it's nothing you did wrong um but that song shows up over and over you know uh in 2008 it was new again so you know keeps happening and there's also this interesting conflict is probably the wrong word but the fan base who wants to hear a song from those old roads you're talking about mm-hmm. right um you know i want to hear eye of the hurricane which is a great song but that is a road that you traveled 30 years ago right but they seem i don't want to say they're stuck there because it's it's a sentimental favorite for a a myriad of beautiful reasons, right? There's only only positive energy around why they love that song. But for you, who has traveled different roads now, for some songs, like you were saying, they they take on new life. Others may not. Um, how do you reconcile that sort of, oh, they want to go back to those roads? <laughs> they want to go well, back there. Well, there are times when I just surrender to it and I know that it's the medicine for the night. Uh, and I feel the same when I go to hear somebody that I've listened to for years, I want them to play the stuff that I know. And I think it's because I want to somehow sort of rewire my experience of that song into this moment. Um, And so for that, I recognize that, you know, music is doing stuff bigger than my plans and my, you know, set sheet. my set list, but um, the uh, the fortunate thing about the way my music has gone is that my crowd really doesn't expect the old songs. They have really learned, and probably I've just chased away all the people that really did want them. <laughs> but um, they are really coming with a a question of like, so Dave, how you how you been, and and how did you get through the pandemic, and Uh, What have you been sort of thinking about and how does it make sense to you? And, you know, in other words, let's not talk about the same things we talked about last time. Let's talk about what's up. And I'm very grateful for that. That makes it really nice. But it does cause a little bit of frustration. Once I, uh, (laughs) I was about an hour and 15 minutes into a gig and I got a request shouted from the back of the room. Somebody said, hey, Dave. Can you play something from one of your records? (laughs) (laughs) 
I said, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I probably played another new one. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a typical David Wilcox fan in that audience. <laughs> oh, he had a great sense of humor about it. I thought it was fun. <laughs> but you mentioned Greg Brown, who I think as a writer is Hemingway-like in the way mm. in his precision. Um, he's a guy that I've just always marveled at. I, I just his oeuvre, I guess you would say, is um just filled with the with such I think precision and finesse. Yeah. Um he's one of the greats, one of the great American writers. Yeah. It's so fun. And I remember going to hear him, you know, and I owned a lot of his records. And like, you know, three quarters of the way through the the concert, I'm thinking to myself, I haven't heard anything I know. <laughs> So, yeah. I'm, and it was I mean, still okay, right? Yeah, I was still okay. Yeah. Um, For you and your, in terms of like producing albums, I was talking to my class. We were doing a piece on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon yesterday and the enduring quality of that album. What a nice class. What's the name of the class? It's a critical thinking class. And, oh. um, you know, some of them said, oh, I've never heard of this band before, but I, I think my parents have this somewhere, you know, yeah. and I was explaining to them, which seemed weird, that albums are like novels where there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And like, not always, but I mean, really back in those days, it was like, it was like an experience. Um, and somebody asked me if, they said, do musicians still make albums like that anymore? And I said, I, th I think they probably think of it in those terms for your for you and the way your brain is wired in 2023 to make an album, do you think of it like that? Do you think of it as a sort of novelistic experience? Not that it's a concept, but that's that I think experience. it becomes that. I think it becomes that uh, and not because of any sort of plan on my part. When I look at a bunch of songs, like on this, I'm working on two projects at once and, and one of them, this uh, lovely, very patient uh, friend of mine who's kind of helping with the produ production. <laughs> he said, just send me the top of the list. And I sent him the songs that I thought were really worth recording. And he said, Dave, the top of the list, please. I said, yeah. He said, this is 60 songs. I said, well, there's been a pandemic. I had a lot of time. <laughs> but the fun part is when you try to pull songs together, um, they start to have sort of this gravitational field and they start to attract other songs that will complement them and sort of find a, a, a theme, a unity, an arc. And, and so what's fun about that for me is it helps me sort of feel the soundtrack of uh, the meaning of these past couple years. Um, and when those songs come together, it's not uh, sort of a logical choice. It's more like leaning into uh, when I put this song after that song, they both feel better. I wonder why, you know? Uh, and so by sort of rearranging them and trusting my hunch about sort of what makes them really come to life the ideas work with each other like for example uh that recent Aeneas Mitchell record um it's just a fantastic circle of songs 
you know, and by the time you get to the very end of the record, the first song makes a whole lot more sense. And you realize that this whole thing that she has done uh, about accomplishing this great thing with great camaraderie and patience and uh, it is a transformation. And then there's this, like, what do you do next? And you come back to the Over Brooklyn Bridge song and ah, it's all in there. The whole record is now in the first song. So that kind of thing just makes um, the songs feed off each other and it becomes just a, a bigger life form. And that's the more you get to know that album too, the fluidity of it starts to emerge. Yeah. So, and that's based on your own experience and your own life and the experience of listening to the album. It's like these two different forces that are combining. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful record. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It also makes me think that your life is filled with music daily, whether your own or you're listening. You're always listening, it seems. I do love it. Yes. And and the weird part is um, I'm always singing. And I don't notice it. It's a thing that happens. And, you know, like when my son was small, he we'd like be in the grocery store and he would say, Papa, I'd say, what? Don't sing. Was I singing? <laughs> <laughs> Has it always been like that? Were you even as a kid? Were you doing that? No, no, I didn't sing at all. I played guitar. I started playing guitar when I was 18 and I played guitar for about two years before I ever sang, I was sure that I couldn't sing. And I never did. So was picking up the guitar sort of like a dorm room choice? Was that like a collegiate thing that happened? It was hearing Joni Mitchell songs and, well, hearing open tuning songs played by this woman who was also, you know, in my dorm. And she was playing her guitar in the stairwell at the end of the dorm, and it had that nice echo. Uh, and I just would, I was attracted to it. I just had to hear that sound. There was something about taking music into your own hands. There was something about, uh, it was sort of like the, the barefoot doctor movement, you know, it was sort of like uh, taking the authority out of the music business and realizing that this is a tool for the people and we need to take it back. Uh, and open tunings seemed to me at the time to be the key to the whole revolution because they sound beautiful, just one strum, no hands. It's just the guitar itself is already making a beautiful sound and just a, a few little you know, uh, it 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 was it was welcoming and it it made it seem possible. Uh, and at first, I considered myself a guitar listener. I would put my fingers on it and I would listen to it. And people say, "Oh, do you play guitar?" I said, "No, I'm just listening." And they say, "Well, you're playing it." No, I'm just putting my fingers here and listening to the sound that it makes. But to me, that was a wordplay to keep myself from getting in the way of what I was feeling. Uh, what I was feeling was this sense of um, sort of like access to my own heart. Uh, and that was a, a strange and new thing for me. 
um, I, I was, I had stuffed a lot of emotion just to get through and, um, guitar was the sort of archeology span that unearthed all that life that I had buried. Had you been kind of guitar curious up to that point? Or... <laughs> what a great phrase. <laughs> I was a, uh... <laughs> That's a beautiful melding of ideas. Um, <laughs> I think, yes, I had been guitar curious and I had, you know, friends who played guitar. As a matter of fact, the reason why I started playing was because I had a friend who was trying to figure out Buckets of Rain, the Bob Dylan tune, and um, he didn't know that it was in open D. So this is the first song I learned. And the reason why I learned it was because Harriet Hershorn was playing it in the stairwell. And I said, hey, there's this friend of mine that wants to play that song and he doesn't, doesn't know the chords. Can you write them down? She said, it's in open tuning. I said, what's that? She said, I can't write it down, it's different but I can show you. I said, I don't play guitar. She said, put your fingers here. I'll show you where they go. I said, well, I don't really. She said, just show your friend, just remember. So I did. And uh, the end of that night, I had borrowed her guitar and my fingers were bleeding, but I could play it. And the odd bit was I borrowed a guitar. I didn't own a guitar. I borrowed a guitar for Thanksgiving break and I went home hid the guitar my friend came over he was playing songs and I said hey I can show you that buckets of rain if you like and he handed me his guitar and I said no no wait I'll be right back and I went and got the guitar that was tuned to open D and I played this little riff for him and he didn't receive it as a gift he had this expression like I'd taken something from him and I didn't understand. I said, I've just showed you this so you can play it. He says, no, you play it. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not the guitar player here. But uh, there was a, something in that sound that I could, uh, I could feel was mine. Not the song, not the tuning, but the sense of home, the sense of this is where I feel right. And so that's why I started putting my fingers on a guitar. So if it weren't for that song, I wouldn't play guitar. That's beautiful. Were you surprised by his reaction? I was. I was a little confused. Yeah. What was that? He just it didn't he couldn't do it. No, he could have. But I think what he was trying to say was. Um, he he was very 
he knew that I loved listening to the guitar and he saw that I had kind of found a way to get that somewhere else besides from listening to him. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you stay in touch with her? Uh, when I was a street musician years later, she walked by and said, nice guitar. <laughs> because I had saved up, I had got this job vacuuming at, uh, at the Great Lakes Mall at five in the morning and saving all my money. And I bought a Guild D55 <clears throat> from Barry's Mayfield Music in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was a nice guitar. It still is. I think she gets the artistic assist, though, in your in your career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The set in the volleyball spike. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. There's there are two guys that have a that have a advantage over every other guy. And it's a guy on a motorcycle and a guy with a guitar. And you are both. <laughs> so that's a fascinating thing yeah and i think uh there early on in my sort of chasing this life that i wanted um i did perceive that um access to my heart was something i needed for survival but it was also a way to be brave about flinging my soul out into the world um and uh, sort of the, um, the thing that is most miraculous, like when people say, you know, what's the, what's the best part of music for you? And like on the last little tour that I did, I'm staying with friends, but they're not like old friends that I've known for years. They're people who contact through my manager and say, hey, uh, Dave is traveling through. I see he's playing here. Why don't he come stay? And I'll show up. And there's this sense of trust and safety and kind of like we already have this friendship. They know me because they've heard my music. And, you know, I help with the cooking and wash the dishes and feel at home. And to me, that's so miraculous to have that uh, the music goes out ahead of me and sort of uh, finds the people that might be friends <clears throat> and introduces us. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. Um, and um, <laughs> when I was just playing in San Francisco, I, I stayed on this beautiful 48 foot sailing yacht from people that I had met like two weeks before at another gig. <laughs> and they said, oh, you're playing in San Francisco, come stay. I said, well, how close to the gig? Our boat's right in the harbor. Okay, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, that sense of possibility uh, is something I love so much about music. Um, that uh, if I'm really brave with my heart, and part of why that's so important to me is because that's not my natural state. Like in high school, I was invisible on purpose. I was sort of like trying not to be noticed. And um, 
I was afraid to be myself. <clears throat> and so the people that might have liked me didn't get to know me. Um, and so uh, I just knew that I had to do something really different. And uh, I had to be ridiculously brave with my authentic self. And the music is braver than I could ever be only because in the time it takes to write a song, three days, you get to distill three days worth of bravery into three minutes. And when you take three days worth of bravery and sing it in three minutes, it's strong. You know, it's like, uh, it has a, a, a concentration that is noticeable. It's like, wow, you really said everything just right, right up front. And uh, it, um, it gives me a, a, a little taste of what it would be like to be that brave. And because I've tasted it, I yearn for it, not just in music, but in everything. I want to like be riding the shuttle bus for the rental car at the airport and see somebody beside me and say something and not just you know where you headed but say something as if they needed a word and i might know what that word might be and that sort of mystical um a wish to have that kind of presence in my daily life is is uh, a hunger that I got from music because it tastes so sweet to experience just a microcosm of that way to live. So music kind of obliterated the inclination to be invisible. Yes. And yet I'm still a real introvert. Uh, a crowd is very different than a, a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <clears throat> and there's no there's no trepidation when someone says, come stay with us. I mean, we have a we have a yacht in the harbor. Sounds safe. But I mean, I wonder, I think a lot about just circling back to punk rock really quickly. Punk rock kids getting in the van, sleeping on strangers floors. Mm -hmm. You're doing the more refined punk rock thing where you're, you're traveling the country, sleeping on strangers yachts. <laughs> well, that only happened once. Okay, yeah. twice. But um, <laughs> um, once in San Francisco and once in in uh, Maine. But um, the uh, yeah the the traveling rough is a great adventure. And I was a traveler first. Um, I traveled by bicycle, and I had all the camping gear. I had everything I needed. Really, everything I needed and no place to get back to. This is all in my 20s. Because, you know, when I first went to college, uh, I only stayed one semester because I realized there was so much I had to figure out before I could ever start thinking about, you know, education or what I wanted to major in, or I had bigger decisions to make before that. And I was so far behind in my own personal awareness that I just needed time to be away from everyone who knew me in order to figure out who I might be. And so I traveled by bicycle and, um, and I would just get a job here or there when I needed money, but mostly just 
getting to each intersection and looking in each direction and following the beauty, following what looked most intriguing. In other words, I was trying to nurture my intuition because every different path was a different life because way leads on to way and who knows the people I'll meet and how it will change me. So I was, it was as if I was uh, not trusting my own ability to navigate my life. Like, how do I know which way I want to go? I don't know who I want to be. I don't know even what's possible. So what I want to trust is that choreography of the coincidence. I want to trust the, 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 the synchronicity and the, and the, uh, the sense of intuition that might lead me uh, much better than I could lead myself. And so I spent years doing that. Um, and <clears throat> the, the traveling rough is really empowering because when you know that you have everything you need um, just on your own bicycle and uh, you can go anywhere, you know? And I went, I used to lead bicycle trips in the summer. That was my, you know, summer job. Um, and they were all over the world. And then I would, you know, if I was in Europe, I would stay there and just keep bicycling south as it got colder in the fall. And um, I would uh, find that the world was very welcoming and the universe was very playful. And the more I dared to trust this kind of communication that I had with possibility, the more it seemed to invite me to really fling myself out into that spontaneous improvisation uh, with this wild dance partner that was the the coincidences that would happen and the people that I would meet. And so I loved all that. <clears throat> and now, you know, I still carry my passport because it happens every once in a while that somebody says, hey, I'm going to such and such. Do you want to come? And I'll say yes. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that, you know, part of what I wanted out of music was this sense of being led, being disoriented, being out of my element. Um, and, uh, and music has kept all its promises, but the, the best promise that it kept was that it made my whole life feel like a good song just because I I wasn't after songs I was after the feeling that they gave me but I wanted that feeling in everything I wanted relationships to feel like a good song I wanted neighbors to feel like a good song I wanted the town I live in to feel like it harmonized with me and it was like a good song and so uh, I the choices that I made were always informed by my study of uh, trusting the thousands of decisions that create a song and learning from that microcosm how to make all those other decisions in my life. And sometimes it was literally like, wait, listen for the guitar, the guitar knows best. I say that when I'm writing a song, but I also, you know, like when we were buying a house, we were riding around with the realtor and I had the guitar in the back seat and they would you know, Nance and the realtor would look at all the stuff and check all the boxes. And I'd go in with my guitar and I'd come out 20 minutes later and I'd say, yeah, we don't, we don't live here. <laughs> and they would kind of roll their eyes and say, okay. 
but I would be listening to what does a song feel like when I play it there? Am I self-conscious? Do I feel like uh, uh, it's harder to be me in this house? Or do I feel like uh, I can believe that it matters, that music matters? And that's the kind of house I wanted to live in. And so that's insane behavior, I know. But on the other side of it, um, I felt like because I had such a fine-tuned uh, sort of emotional barometer tied to music, I could use music the way you'd use a metal detector on a beach, just walking along, scanning, scanning, and then you hear this sound in the headphones and it's and you say, dig there. And you don't know what it is, but there's something there. That's the way music was. That's when a song would come and I would feel like, oh my God, this feels so alive, so real, so beautiful. I would say, so that's what I want. How do I get that? And I would feel into the song, like, what are you trying to tell me? How can I live this? That's what I want out of music. I like a triple shot of morning terror. Good for pumping up my heart rate. The new conspiracies are very scary. It's propaganda, but it works great. I'm pouring over with the horror story. Under the hopper till my head's full. Believe the evil ones are coming for me. Makes me edgy like a red bull. I like to go for the jolt. I love to sue we'll all be dead. Thrill, I go for the jolt. The paranoia and the red pill. I go for the jolt. Were it enough to make the dread kill? Ready to bolt. I like to go for the jolt. I've fallen victim to an algorithm. Tracking my searches at a fast pace. Disappeared into a wormhole prison Disinformation makes my heart race Watching everything that recommended What I believe is looking real clear I'm pretty certain that the world has ended I love the rush of feeling fake fear I like to go for the jolt I love the soon we'll all be dead Thrill, I go for the jolt Paranoia and the red pill I go for the jolt Worried enough to make the dread kill Ready to bolt I like to go for the jolt Cause it's hard for me to feel alive Unless my fear is in overdrive So I go for the jolt I love the Sue, we'll all be dead Thrill, I go for the jolt The paranoia and the red pill I go for the jolt Worried enough to make the dread kill Ready to bolt I like to go for the jolt The moments where, and I'm sure there have been dodgy moments, but the dodgy moments never shook your confidence in terms of being brave and and letting yourself expand out into the world. Oh, it was good lessons to fine tune my sense of discernment. Like not only do I have a great sense of where the adventure is, but I have this really 
uncanny sense of when to get the hell out of a situation. And it's happened many times that I have gotten out of a situation and, uh, you know, like minutes before the cops come, so to speak. And everyone's like, where the hell did you go? And I said, well, I just got this feeling. Why didn't you tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You have this like missile defense system that activates like you got to get out. I have gotten out of automobiles that have gone down the road and left me standing there. And I find out later that they crashed. You know? Wow. Really? Yeah. There's a song about that. It's uh, um, we were seven kids speeding in a country squire laughing and feeling free. Hmm. I yelled, stop the car. I got out right there. And then they went and hit that tree. So I was standing by the side of the road thinking I'm a worrying fool. And Robbie went through the windshield and never showed his face at school. My my feeling is that you're an incredibly intuitive person, but you're also, it's one thing to be intuitive. It's another thing to be in touch with that intuition. It's almost like you're the play-by-play and the color commentator at the same time, you know? Uh-huh. In the booth, in the David yeah. Wilcox booth, you've got both going. And, and I think uh, that's yeah. guided you the, well. The, I have a stronger sense of caution than most people. And I also have a more daring sense of possibility. I'll, I'll say yes more often, but I'll know when to say no. <laughs> yeah. Have there yeah. been a moment where you've sort of looked out the window and thought, how did I, how am I in, you know, Perth? I, I don't know where. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where. Yes. Often. Yeah, it it happens. Yes. And I'm really grateful for those. And actually, one of my favorite things is something that a lot of travelers don't like. That moment where you wake up and you don't know where you are. I try to hold that moment because I love that moment. I just think, I don't even know what country I'm in. (laughs) It's just great. Oh, yeah. So disorientation, there's a kind of intoxication in that in that well said yeah and as much as i love that intoxication i'm very cautious of intoxication like you know Mm. i've gotten high like three times in my life and i've gotten drunk once and that once was when i was probably 14 or 15 and my friends were teasing me about how I was so anti-alcohol. And I said, well, I've just seen what it does in my family. And they said, yeah, but you haven't tried it. So I tried it. It was fun. And then I thought, okay, don't need that. It doesn't give me anything I can't get on my own. And I, I had this wild notion about like, what I wanted was to have access to altered states without the chemical leverage. In other words, having just this facility with my own emotional, and now they call it emotional intelligence. But back then I was thinking it was some interesting sort of hack where, uh, you know, like I love working on stuff. I can fix a lot of things. And there's this sort of, the mechanics wisdom is get the right tool for the job. Don't just put a pipe wrench where you need the right size wrench because a pipe wrench will wreck the 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 bolt and then you you have to use the pipe wrench you know you can't then the it ruins the it's not as so i wanted that with my own emotions i wanted to be able to turn my point of view and 
and I can do that. It's actually a, like a physiological thing. I can get those nice shivers and that seeing the colors and uh, just kind of going there um, with my own imagination uh, because I've really kind of studied how to do it instead of just relying on the brute force of some external chemical. But those chemicals are all in my brain anyway. I can make them. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty yeah. fun. I mean, runner's high is a real thing. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. What's interesting is you have that really great balance. I think it's probably pretty rare of bravery and self-preservation. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a common combo. It's a fascinating thing. And I'm writing lately. I've been writing a lot of songs about that self-preservation part and songs that are, um, you know, not uh, congratulatory, songs that are kind of uh, uh, owning up to the fact that... Um, that strong self-preservation thing it was really necessary and yet um it had a ruthlessness to it <clears throat> because i i kind of was perceiving my getting through high school for example um like another verse in that song uh is uh it was a war zone getting through high school we were blowing up one at a time so i was safer at the back of the pack, walking through those buried mines <laughs> and <clears throat> just watching how my friends um, were, you know, dying off one at a time. And uh, I would be like, so aware that there is great danger here, but also so in love with the fact that there is great beauty and great wonder and great freedom here. <clears throat> And so I think it requires uh, that knowing the limit uh, in order to get close to that bliss. How does that measure up with also having a family, which is, you know, a family is a stable notion yeah. and the road is the road is wild and unpredictable. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful balance. And I, I loved that that part of my life so much, uh, that whole child rearing time is just delicious because I again, I looked at it at its depth, <clears throat> not just sort of the basic parenting of, you know, keep the kid alive, make sure he's fed, uh, right. but um but look at it as what is this offering in terms of how I see the world, how I can kind of go back through what I'm experiencing with my child to see again the things that shaped me as a child. <clears throat> it's been uh, fascinating to um, the riches that come from being a parent uh, there's such wisdom that comes from that. And I'm so grateful. And I loved the stability. I, and um, it was fascinating during the pandemic. You know, I got to be home like all the time. And I had never done that. Uh, and it was such a joy. I got to feel what other people take for granted about you know planting a garden and actually seeing it come in uh and the <clears throat> the way we were potted up with our neighbors uh and having meals together and that community and the closeness and the um 
it opened my event horizon. Uh, normally, when I'm traveling, my event horizon is about three days. I don't, I really don't know where I'm going. I just know, or actually my phone knows where I'm going to be tonight, but that's it. <laughs> and um, so uh, the, the being home allowed me to, you know, be showing up at a steady pace, you know, like movie night, Tuesday night, every week with the same friends out in the front yard. I made our big screen TV into this giant wagon we called it the movie wagon and i would roll it out into the front yard and the neighbors would come up with the lawn chairs it was great so all that kind of community stuff just felt so good and i thought the pandemic was just a luscious time for us introverts um sorry about all those extroverts but for me it was bliss <laughs> no claustrophobia no no everybody i've spoken to who is a musician is an introvert. I've never had one say to me, "Oh, I'm actually an extrovert." <laughs> they're, they're all introverts. Um, I think I think when you're when you're performing, if it's going to really connect at the heart, you're singing to one person. Uh, it feels like an intimate conversation, and there are many of those one person out there. But uh, you're you're. Uh, to me, the the closeness of the communication is more like a, a conversation with a friend, a trusted friend. My impression of you is that you're good at being alone, um, which is I, I think is a lost art. Um, and and so you're fine with your own company. You're fine biking down the road, running down the road, traveling somewhere. Yeah. I I love the freeways of America. A lot of times. I won't even listen to music. I'll, there's just uh, the conversations in my own head are pretty inter interesting. <laughs> there's a lot of crazy ideas up there. And uh, it's good to have time to sort of let them have their voice. When you were a young man and you did that, this is before cell phones. Were your parents a little concerned? Like, hey, maybe check in. Was there, was there a little bit of that? Or <laughs> Here's a little window into benevolent neglect. Um, they, my parents agreed to let me and my friend John take this long bike trip. They dropped us off at the Canadian border, the top of Vermont, and we bicycled down through Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and through Boston and out the Cape. Uh, I was 12. He was 11. And, uh, you know, I mean, we would call every few days from a payphone, uh, but, you know, we were staying with people that we met along the way. I mean, it could have been a horror movie, but again, the intuition, like there were creeps, there were weird people we had to dodge, but um, it was really good for me because it just gave me this sense of, um, you know, the world is not a safe place but it's really fun. So if you can, if you can have that sixth sense about where the danger is, then you can get really close to where the life is. And so we'd be ridiculously free and uh, surprisingly conservative. I mean, we'd be swimming in the, in the Texas falls uh, along the, you know, that beautiful river. Um, and 
think to ourselves, okay, so it's going to be dark soon, so we need to find a place to camp. And then, you know, we're sussing it out. How close is this? Can they see us from the road? Uh, we need to get further up the hill and, um, you know, taking care, being smart. Um, and it had a little of that sort of, you know, the Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer kind of feel to it about like, um, we can rise to the occasion. We can be uh, smart enough to be safe and still be ridiculously free. Uh, it was very fun. Uh, and, you know, for years it was a dinner table conversation because my mom would always be like telling this story to some new friend that I brought home. And she would say to my dad, I can't believe you let the boys do that. And my dad said to me, well, how did I know you were as old as you'd ever been? <laughs> he couldn't imagine that I was that young because I was as old as I had ever been. So I thought that was just fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I was still in that sort of little kid wisdom, you know, because little kids have that big soul. And he could kind of tell that I was going to be all right. <laughs> Man, but it, it so could not have been. I mean, it, it, it could have gone so wrong, but it's so amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an incredible story. How long did it take you to get back? I think we were out. We took our time. I think it was like three weeks, probably. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible. That is like Huck Finn. Huck Finn on a on a Schwinn. <laughs> Going for the rhyme. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. I mean, the self sufficiency that you learned at twelve. Yeah. Is something some people don't get till they're fifty three. Yeah. Yeah. And so even now, bicycling is a mystical thing. It takes me back. Um, and just the physicality of it, I just love it. I'm arranging this uh, bike trip this summer with uh, another good friend, uh, and it still feels the same. Um, we're going to ride along the Erie Canal, you know, and uh, it's going to be um, that same kind of, that's, there's something about making it point to point uh, having that sort of like having this new scene roll out in front of my sight that I've never been here before and what's around the corner. There's something about that. That's so good for me. It just brings my whole story alive. The poet Gary Snyder was telling my class in graduate school that he in like 1959 or something, he had hitchhiked across the United States and, um, he said, this is in like in 94. He said, I wouldn't do that anymore. He said, I, I don't think it's safe anymore to do that. Um, but, you know, you think like the, the Woody Guthrie days sort of rambling through and, and going where you go. Um, I get what Gary Snyder meant about how it, it doesn't, there is an element of danger, of course, that feels more dangerous now than maybe it's ever been. I don't know if that's really true. Um, and your intuition has gotten you out of a lot of trouble, but are, but there it must be a wariness too, where you, right? Like a, to trust people, to trust a situation. Um, is that skill as sharp as it's always been? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think I'm 
relatively out of practice, but I think I've still got some pretty good chops if I use them. Um, uh, I think that it, when I think about, for example, hitchhiking across the country, um, you know, there's this friend of mine whose daughter decided she was going to ride the rails for years, just hopping trains. And there is a way that that is ridiculously dangerous. And there's a way that if you decide you're going to do that, I mean, if you do survive, it's because you have developed this really intense sort of radar, uh, an emotional radar. You can pick up on what people are, what their intent is. And um, I think if you let that sense atrophy, then yes, it's really dangerous. But I think actually we just hear more about the terrible stories now just because we're all connected to the news. But um, I think that uh, it is still a, a world of a heightened sense of, uh, oh man, I'm right at the edge of my language. There's some, some mystical connection that you have that keeps you safe. Uh, and I think the reason why you do it is to get that sense, to get that connection. And, uh, and so if you have felt that connection and, and if you felt life really come alive, then you would say that what's really dangerous is to live a life and never feel that. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And also in different, different countries, the cultural sensitivity of this worked in Rhode Island, but it won't work in France. You have to also adjust the the meter, right? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something really wonderful about um, relying much more on, you know, uh, sub language communication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that movie. Uh, it might get loud with Jack White and the edge mm -hmm. and Jimmy page talking about, do you ever see that? Yeah. There's that moment where Jack White says in a song, in a particular song, he says, I go to the piano and I leave my guitar in front of the mic. And I know that in the song, I have, I have seven seconds to get from the piano back to my guitar and the microphone. And I purposely put things in my way to make those seven seconds harder for me. Cause if I get there, it'll mean more, it'll be more challenge, right? I'll make it harder <laughs> to get there. And I, and I feel like that, you know, that sort of like your life is that sort of idea of like, let's let's put some foreign moments some discomfort some unknowns and navigate those and that's where the truth seems to live oh yeah that's beautiful i i somebody told me that robert frost was quoted as he someone was asking him what he thought of free verse verse that doesn't have rhyme and meter and he said well that's fine for them but to me it feels like playing tennis without the net <laughs> it's just too easy you know it, it you don't have to invest the time in it to get good um i don't know what do you think about that that sort of formalist it's such a formalist idea right mm. oh well i'm a big fan of 
uh, you know, if I, if I have a song that is trying to teach me something that I really want to learn, I will purposely give it a complex rhyme scheme, a lot of internal rhymes. And I'll purposely give it kind of a stark scansion that won't fit for all kinds of different words. It, it requires more time to find the exact right word. Because I know that if I set up this obstacle course, uh, it's going to require me to spend more time abiding in the yearning, in the wishing that I could find this clarity of thought. And the more time I spend, the more the song is working on me. You know, I'm working on the song, but the song's working on me. It's changing me. And if I could finish the song quickly, I would miss the opportunity to abide in that yearning and feel myself stretch emotionally, mentally, to find this different way of seeing. Um, and so I love being halfway through a song. Some people like finishing a song. To me, I like you know, the 10th rewrite on the third day. That feels really good. <laughs> because you're getting closer to that moment? Not necessarily. It's actually just because I know that um, spending time in the yearning is just good in itself. It, mm. it stretches my my heart um i i i find um yeah i don't know how to say it any differently i don't know that's a moment where it's like it's definitely the journey more than the destination in that yeah 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 it, just to close it i'm just kind of curious your notion of home um it sounds to me like like the world is your home but did the pandemic sort of you know, with that sort of receding a little bit, I guess. Um, do you feel that way? Or do you feel that your home really is the home where you live? I mean, do you feel more grounded? Because um, okay, I imagine you must be in two places at once in your mind. It is a, gr a great balance. Uh, it is a balance I really appreciate. The coming home feels so good. And I love being home. I love little projects and working on something and making stuff. Um, and uh, two days before I'm going to go out on a gig, I'm feeling like so wanting to stay home. And then the night before the flight, it just switches. I just get this sort of my, the, the clouds part and the horizon opens. And I just feel this sense of like, <gasps> there's going to be wonderful adventures and i'm i'm gonna reside in these songs that challenge me to you know hold myself accountable to this uh little epiphany that i got in a song and when i sing it i i remind myself of that possibility of being that alive and so i know it's going to be good for me and i switch to loving the road when i'm on the road you know I'll sort of make this practice of like, oh, yeah, yeah, call home. I, I remember to call home. There's a home somewhere. 
that's out there. <laughs> and I will do that. And then as soon as the last gig is done, I'm like running for the barn. I'm like, can't wait to get home. Um, and I love that balance. Um, it, it just feels like the in-breath and the out-breath. You know, it feels like you can't do one without the other. You've got to have that beautiful grounded sort of uh, recharge and, and respite and quiet. And then you have to have the, the stretch and the adventure and the uncertainty. Did you marry someone who's like you in that sense or is she different? I got really lucky in that regard. Um, when we first met, Nance was explaining to me that she was curious about having a relationship with someone who traveled part of the time. She thought that would be a good thing for her because she noticed that in her last relationship, she got a little too enmeshed with this other person and was living her life for their life. And she knew that wasn't good for her. So she thought if somebody traveled half the time, she would have this ability to come back to herself with a regular steady practice. And I said, well, I travel half of each month. And she said, that might be really good for me. <laughs> so a lot of musicians, you hear them on their call home and they're like apologizing. When I used to call home, it would be like, hello, is Nance there? Uh, and there'd be like this crowd in my house. And she'd come by and say, hey, how you doing? I'd say, what's going on? She said, oh, I just had the book club over or, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, are you busy? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll call you. <laughs> See ya. Because <laughs> she would fill her life with things that were nurturing to her when I was away. And then when I would come home, we would have this intense together time. So that was one of the things that was a real blessing was she had this sort of rule, this mandate, you got to be home half time, at least half time. And during the busy time of my career, you know, that was a challenge because the booking agent would say, oh, we got this great offer. And I'd say, sorry, we're already 15 days this month. And he'd say, yeah, but I'd say, yeah, you know, figure a buffer next time so that when this deal comes next time, you'll have room for it, but it can't be more than 15 days a month. And it was lovely to have that practice because it, in some ways, uh, you know, like the business mind would say, oh, that's sabotage. You were ruining your career. You didn't strike while the iron is hot and all that. But the other side of it is think of it like sustainable agriculture. While the other musicians were letting all the topsoil run off into the river, my soil just kept getting better and better because I had the time to nurture my home life and that's why I'm still writing more than ever. So I think it has been a lovely balance, the home and the travel. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I when I was working college radio, I got records that AM sent me like the Soundgarden record, the Soul Asylum record, the David Wilcox record. And I was like, well, David Wilcox must be cool if it comes with I didn't know any, I didn't know your music. And I I was introduced to that just because it came in the same package. And yeah. I was like, David Wilcox is very cool. And that's why I got on board. But it was so, so interesting to think that you were on the same label as Soundgarden, as yeah. Soul Asylum, as Delamitri, as yeah. um anyway, that's it was an interesting time where we had record labels where AM was such a diverse roster too. So yeah. I mean, 
it's so, it was so fun to be there right at the end before it got sold and to get the tour and to, you know, hear about the, the studio where they shot the videos was the old Charlie Chaplin studio. It was the Chaplin that. stage. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> the history, the murals on the wall and all that. Uh, it was so 70s and so interesting, uh, that heyday of, because that, that was the last blast, you know, when CDs were selling and everyone was uh, rebuying their record collection on CD and the, the labels were flush with money. It was ridiculous. They, they spent so much on my records, completely unnecessary, but it was fascinating. Yeah, I visited the office once I interviewed Delamitri in the office down there on, in what street was it on? It was on, um, I don't remember, but it was a cool, funky little office. Yeah. It was cool. I, I really enjoyed it. Anyway, yeah. Um, David, what a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time and and sharing with me your philosophy. And I mean, it's so cool to talk. Thank you much. It's uh, my pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, this was a much more interesting uh, series of questions than the usual interview. And I'm grateful for your willingness to follow my quirky path. Thank you. There you go. David Wilcox. What a cool conversation. A very cool guy. Fascinating fellow, right? I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. His new album is something I also enjoy. My good friends, it is phenomenal. But then again, it's a David Wilcox album. Of course it's phenomenal. Visit David at davidwilcox.com. You can also visit me at alexgreenonline.com or just email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. You can also find me on Twitter, well, what's left of it, at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. And don't forget to visit Bombshell Radio at BombshellRadio.com. So much businessy stuff, and there's more. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Speaking of friends, let's revisit the title track from David Wilcox's new album, My Good Friends. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I got shot at two different times. Both times they missed. Lady Luck was looking good that night, but I'm the one she kissed. We were dancing at the edge of it all, but I had the knack. I could lean into the endless fall, touch it and still turn back. Now I can't help wondering how I got so lucky again. Thinking about the death of my good friend.
We were seven kids speeding in a country squire, laughing and feeling free. I yelled, stop the car, I got out right there. Then they went and hit that tree. So I was standing by the side of the road, just thinking I was a worrying fool. Robbie went through the windshield and never showed his face at school. Now I can't help wondering how I got so lucky again. Thinking about the death of my good friend. It was a war zone getting through high school. We were blowing up one at a time. So I was safer at the back of the pack, walking through the buried mines. All the angels working overtime. What the hell would we do next? Diving into shallow water. Someone's gonna break their neck. Now I can't help wondering how I got so lucky again. Think about the death of my good friends. I'm always checking on the exits. You watch me when disaster comes. I ain't saying I'm a hero, but you can follow me when I run. I guess it isn't such a mystery how I got so lucky again. Thinking about the death of my good friends. Thinking about the death of. My good.